0: Hello, folks. Happy New Year and welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and each week I'm usually joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier, and of course, improving your triathlon performance. This week I'm returning to a podcast that I recorded in March 2021 with my brother Jonathan. In the podcast, we talked about self compassion and how it can build resilience something that I have realised we all need and that we all have. There's a lot spoken of in sport about mental toughness and how this is what separates the winners from the rest. You know what I mean, the will to win, want to get more than the other guys, no pain, no gain, etc, etc. The thing is, I think we already have these skills and traits and given the right opportunity, we've all used them. For example, you turn up every day to train, overcome injuries or illness, Deal with setbacks in your life, that's called resilience. You swim up and down the pool looking at the black line, do repeated running drills, or sit on your indoor trainer. That's boring, but it's essential to master the process. You do that. You have life values and a philosophy which allows you to achieve all of the above. That requires a certain mindset. You have that as well. And you manage stress. Some of it is always there and perhaps you don't even realise you're dealing with it. Training's also a stress, mostly good and usually bad. And in the last two years, Covid's been an ever-present for all of us and yet here we all are having dealt with it in some way. Underlying all of this is self-compassion. Personally, I used to give myself a hard time if I didn't get up early to go to the pool, missed a bike session because it was raining or shelved a run because I just had too much work. But that's life, right? We all have other parts to our life which take priority and making them a priority doesn't make us lazy. It's called being a human. It was only when I started to chat with my brother that I realized calling myself out for things I should have done wasn't healthy. Instead, he taught me to have some self-compassion and that is the reason why I would like you to take the next 45 minutes to listen closely a conversation which could change your life and help you to build huge resilience so that rather than just surviving, you can thrive. So, let's listen to the conversation. Welcome to the show, my brother. What an absolute pleasure it is to have you on the show. Jonathan Wards, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for inviting me. No, it's, it's great. Now, you... These days, I mean, you are a, you've been to law school, you've you know, done, gone through all of that, you, you were the manager of a successful restaurant in London for several years, but here you are now as a courage coach. Um, I have a rough idea what that means, but perhaps you can explain to our listeners how exactly a courage coach
1: works. So um, I was very fortunate to be able to go to America in 2014 and train with um, one of my heroes, Brenny Brown. And she is a researcher into shame, uh, vulnerability and courage. And um, the book that she wrote, Daring Greatly, is all about how to show up, be seen and live more bravely. And this really spoke to me. It really made me sit up and think, wow, yeah, that's, that's the point, I think, of all of our lives, isn't it? To have purpose to show up and be seen and live more bravely. And so it felt like after I'd finished my training with her, it was a natural progression for me to kind of help others to, to, to live more bravely, to show up and be seen in, in whatever area that might be. And sometimes that's not about going out into the world. Often we think as courage as these big things like climbing Mount Everest or saving people from burning buildings. But actually, I think the most courageous journey for me is the one that we take from our head to our heart, that 18-inch journey, where we hopefully can leave behind the stories that we tell ourselves and live with some more truth and wisdom from, from our hearts.
0: Well, interesting what you talk about there about courage and how people perceive courage. You know, the way you talk about climbing Mount Everest. Yesterday, I chatted with a lady who I met 20 years ago when I ran the Marathon de Sable, and she's gone on to become one of the world's top ultra runners, female ultra runners. But she said that um, she was diagnosed with a serious knee condition, which meant she couldn't run anymore. So rather than just hanging up her running shoes, she decided to participate in a triathlon, but she couldn't swim. And so at 54, she decided she had to learn to swim. And she reminded me of our mum. Do you remember that? That she learned to swim at 50. And we both know how fearful she was of the water. She wouldn't even stand under a shower. And so t- the courage she showed to learn to swim at a time when most people would say, well, I don't need to do that now, was, was something we discussed um, for a few minutes yesterday. So that that's perhaps, is, is but still not the sort of courage you're talking about.
1: Well, yeah, but courage can be be lots of different things to lots of different people, you know, people who fear going outside for them just walking through the front door. Mm. That's courage. You know, people who fear crossing the road when cars are coming, you know, to be able to stand there while traffic's going past them. For some people, that's an act of courage.
0: Mm.
1: You know, speaking up in relationships, you know, all the messages and expectations that we had of the things that we're not supposed to do for fear of rejection, for fear of disconnection. Each of those in itself is an act of courage. So daily, we're facing things that need our courage. Whenever we feel a sense of fear, no matter how great that is or how small that is, courage always has to come in to help us move forward.
0: So explain a little bit more about this, this short journey then, the 18-inch journey from your head to your heart and how courage is involved in that, that thing there.
1: So for most people, I think we tend to live from the neck up. You know, we we miss out on the wisdom of our bodies by spending most of our time in our heads. And that's, I think, part of our education system in this country or kind of in the Western world where we're taught to think things through. We're taught to work things out. We're taught to analyze. Um, So we spend all of our time in our heads. And, you know, the body has an enormous wisdom to it. There's a lot of information that shows up in our body before it shows up in our brain. So our response to emotion is always felt first in the body, but we don't necessarily, we haven't learned or we don't know how to pay attention to it. So when we can move from our heads to our hearts, we can have a completely different experience of life. We stop thinking and we start feeling. We stop making stories and we start just being. You know, it's the move from doing to being. You know, we're not human doings, we're human beings, but we've lost the ability or we don't know the ability just to be.
0: Very interesting what you talk about there, because we often have discussions as coaches, triathlon coaches, endurance coaches, about the preponderance of gadgets that people use. You know, I've got one of these on my wrist now, which tells me how fast I'm running or what my heart rate is or how long I've been running for, or how much, how much climbing I've done. And we tend to, and and we observe that uh, and hear that a lot of people say that, you know, their watch told them to slow down, that they're, you know, that they were going too fast or too slow or they weren't working hard enough, which perhaps is something we'll come back onto later in terms of giving yourself a break and um, showing yourself some compassion. but. And then, of course, this goes straight up on something like Strava, which, of course, then the whole world can see what you're doing. And then you start to get worried about what other people think about what you're doing, which can cause problems in itself. And yet, if you talk or listen to elite athletes and coaches who've been around, and actually you mentioned a word there, which has been on my mind a lot recently, of wisdom versus knowledge and intelligence. When you listen to those elite athletes and elite coaches, often they talk about what's great about the the world's best is that they are able to feel things. They know when they're running too hard because they can tell by their breathing and they, and it, and they're so good at that, that just 1% harder, they can tell when they've crossed the line, you know, and they can go 1% easier and just just below that line. Um, They can tell when something's not right. And we, we do talk about this a lot, don't we, as human beings, it's strange that we don't act upon it, but we talk about gut feelings yeah. So it's a common phrase, oh, my gut's telling me this and yeah, oh, but I must do what my head's telling me.
1: And there's a constant battle, isn't there, between, you know, yeah. our head and our intuition or mm. a knowledge that comes from somewhere else. But because it's less kind of less talked about or less accepted, mm. you know, some people live from their gut, but most people live from their heads. You know, the journey is also when we make the journey from our heads to our hearts, it's the journey of looking within, it's the journey of looking at ourselves. And how we show up in the world and how we are in relationships. And, and maybe, you know, as we're going to talk about how kind we are to ourselves or how cruel we are to ourselves. And that, for a lot of people, that's a really scary journey to look within. We prefer not to.
0: Mm. Just going back to that intuition thing, I remember being at a presentation um, at a conference from the people who were the selection panel for RAF fighter pilots or, or flights pilot school. So not, not always fighter pilots, but helicopter pilots and transport plane pilots and they they decided to reflect on the intake forms of some of their most successful people and when they're doing those interviews before they take people on they make notes and when they refer, referred back to those notes 95% of the notes they made on that first interview proved to be correct so if if they said this person will be has the aptitude and ability and you know habits to be a fighter pilot they were often proved correct from that instinctive intuitive feel and when it said this person will struggle because of they were proved correct 95% of the time their intuition was right and of course that's not good in a physics, because it, it's subjective not objective and always we have to have we have to have data to back up our decisions these days which again um, is perhaps the way we are starting to act is we have to act on data not feel
1: it goes back to your watch doesn't it here's the data this is what my watch is telling me therefore I must do it Hmm.
0: Yes. But you can't put, you can't put feelings onto Strava, unfortunately. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Well, no, that's it. Wearables and all of that stuff. Maybe they'll be able to get, get doing that. So, um, let's talk about self-compassion then. Cause I'm, um, it, it, it came to the forefront of my mind. I know we've talked about this, uh, on and off, um, for a few years, but it was brought to the forefront of my mind recently by another book I read by a coach who, was talking about all of the foundational aspects of elite performance and at the end of his book there's a whole chapter on self-compassion and it made me think more about this and some of the observations I've had of the, the athletes I have worked with and know of and a lot of what he was saying rang true for myself I suppose as well uh, that we like to be hard on ourselves that we don't give ourselves a break that if you show yourself some self-compassion it's seen as a bit of self-pity or you know sort of indulgence. So I'm, I'm hoping that you're going to help me and the listeners to sort of clarify what this really is and actually why self-compassion can be a very, very positive um, behavior.
1: Okay. So I think before we talk about self-compassion, I want to talk about compassion for a bit. So you get more of an understanding of what, of what compassion is. And I'd like to lead you through an example. So I'd like you to imagine that you're walking down a road and, um, You're on one side, and on the other side of the road, you can see a lady, and she's just got a a bag full of shopping. And you actually witness her stumble and fall, and her shopping flows out of her bag all over the pavement. Now, at that moment, you have a choice. The first thing you have to notice is that the woman has fallen. If you're busy in your own head with your own stuff, and you've got to get somewhere quickly, you may not even notice she 's fallen over or dropped her shopping so the first element of uh, of compassion is to be you have to notice that somebody is struggling okay now there you have the choice you could carry on walking and thinking i don 't have time i don 't have time to go and see if she 's okay i 'm just going to keep on walking i 've got to get to work i 've got to get to my run i 've got to get to my cycle to my swim if you choose to cross over the road and see how that woman is you then move from Noticing to uh, the sense of common humanity of that could be me, and if that was me, what would I like? I would like somebody to come over and say, "How are you doing? You know, do you need anything?" But mm-hmm. it could be that you just ask her how she is, and she says, "I'm fine," or and then you could move off. Compassion—the element of compassion that is different—is the desire to do something to help. Mm-hmm. So you move from kind of a sympathetic response of, oh, I see that lady over there, to an empathic response, which is, oh, that could be me, to a compassionate response is, what can I do to help? Mm -hmm. So you would then go over and and ask and help her gather up her shopping and maybe sit her down and see if she's all right until she's ready to move on. Now, the same elements are exactly the same in self-compassion. The first thing we have to do is we have to notice that we're struggling. You know, without a watch telling us you're struggling, you know, without some data saying, oh, Simon, you know, you're in trouble right now, slow down. It's those elite athletes that you were talking about. You know, they have the capacity to notice. And, you know, m- most people tend to be much more compassionate towards others than they are to themselves. <laughs> yeah. We notice struggle in others, but we don't notice struggle in ourselves. You know, we ride through things, whereas with other people, you might say to them, you know, you need to take a break. So the first element of self-compassion is mindfulness. We have to be mindfully aware of what we're experiencing. The second element of, common, uh, of self-compassion is common humanity. It's that sense of noticing the woman that could be me or just like me. So in common humanity, we recognize that our struggle is part of being human. And you know the, the alternative to common humanity is a sense of isolation. We tend to think it's just me. I'm the only one. And that then takes us into a story of shame and isolation and further withdrawal. The third element of self-compassion is self-kindness. So self-kindness instead of self-judgment. So when we notice that we're struggling, we might say to ourselves, oh my God, you shouldn't be struggling. You're an athlete. You should know how to get through this. This is weakness. Just carry on. Whereas self-kindness might say, well, what you're experiencing right now is really hard. You know, that muscle that you, that twitch you can feel in your calf, maybe just slow down and pay some attention to that. So we have these three elements, mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness. And there are two different sides of self-compassion. You have a yin side of self-compassion, and you have a yang side of self-compassion. And the yin of self-compassion is the more soothing and supportive part where we talk to ourselves kindly. The yang of self-compassion is being active out in the world, so this is something that Christian Neff, who is one of the founders of Mindful Self-Compassion, is writing about at the moment, and she calls it fierce self-compassion. It's the capacity to say no. It's the capacity to put boundaries up and say that's enough, or this is too much.
0: Well, I'm making lots of notes here, bro.
1: Yeah. So there's a beautiful, a beautiful phrase which kind of encompasses the yin and the yang of self-compassion, which says strong back, soft front.
0: And what, what was the lady that's writing about fierce self-compassion?
1: Her name is Kristen Neff. So Kristen Neff and Chris Germer uh, are the founders of Mindful Self-Compassion. They collaborated together to, to, to make this program. And
0: what you said there was strong back, soft
1: front. So the soft front is the yin. It's the softness. It's the gentleness. It's the kind words. And the strong back is that sense of yang self-compassion that I'm here and I'm important and I'm worthy.
0: So when you talk about this common humanity and the fact that we're all humans, I get a sense that we're all born with the ability to have self-compassion for ourselves. But perhaps it's, and you mentioned the Western world. Now, I, I also get a sense that perhaps this will be different in the Eastern world. But uh, is it taught, are we taught to, you know, is it taught out of us this, this ability to be self um, have self compassion, and so uh, so. My question was: Is it is it is it nature or nurture? It almost feels like it's nature, but then it's nurture that draws it out of us, and then we have to learn to bring it
1: back in again. So the great thing about self compassion is, is that it is teachable and learnable. Which for me, I, I'm so grateful because I had no self compassion at all. You know, gr- growing up, um, you know, towards myself, and we might talk about my journey through my health later. Um. But yes, I think we're all born with the capacity to be self-compassionate. I think it depends very much on, on culture, environment, and as you say, nurture. You know, if, if, if you have parents who, are very, who model self-compassion, who are very kind to themselves, then you're more likely to learn self-compassion. But if you have parents who are critical or disappointed or you know, instill a lot of fear, then it's unlikely you know if your parents don't know what self-compassion is that you learn that as a child so there is a split between the western world and the eastern world you know I've done some traveling in in Vietnam and they're much more gentle in Vietnam it's just part of their culture it's part of how they treat each other and how they treat themselves
0: what what you said there if if you're um, willing willing to chat about it a bit more about your own journey to this point uh, is interesting because I've met a lot of people who become experts in nutrition but maybe it's nutrition in dealing with irritable bowel syndrome or helping people to overcome heart problems because they've had those problems themselves and then they learn about you know and then maybe they 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 learn how to heal themselves and how to live a better uh, more healthy life afterwards but then they want to share that and then they become that go-to person so sounds like that's almost what's happened to you is you had your own problems you need to figure a way out of it and this was part of your pathway out of that so would you be willing to share that a little
1: for sure so as you mentioned earlier i i I had dreams of being a lawyer so I, i went to university and did law and then decided it wasn't for me right then so i came to london started working in restaurants um Partied a lot, drove myself very hard, went to the gym a lot, and I just ended up pushing myself too hard. I was constantly striving for what I now realise was some sort of sort of perfection, mm. because I didn't have a, a deep sense of my own worthiness. I had to hustle for my worthiness by how I looked, what I wore, what I did, where I'd been. So I was it was constantly pushing. There's a part of us that there's there's a very good. Um, therapeutic system called internal family systems. And it talks about different parts of our personalities. And the part of the personality that was really kind of prevalent in me was the taskmaster or the pusher, constantly pushing me to try and achieve more in order to get a sense of worthiness. So I ended up pushing myself way too hard. Um, In 1998, when I was in London, visiting my best friend, um, my legs literally collapsed. I was like, a newborn deer who couldn't quite get up off their legs and I was on the floor and it was a very scary moment because I was going, okay, it's time to get up now. But actually I couldn't, I couldn't get up. My legs had stopped working and I had to sit there for a while and I got up and then I went back to the doctor when I went back to Manchester where I was living and working. And she said to me, Oh, you've got post-viral fatigue syndrome, have some antidepressants. (laughs) And I didn't question that. I just went, okay, she's a doctor. She must know. I took the antidepressants, um, I'd been working out at the gym three or four times a week. I was running a huge restaurant. I was under a lot of pressure. Um, I was working probably 60 hours a week. And then I was partying hard at the weekend as well. Um, So I took these antidepressants, but I stopped going to the gym. And and what happened to me was I just ballooned. I just kept on eating because I was so tired. And I ballooned to the biggest and the fattest I've ever been. Um, And then I went off to Australia. And I kind of got myself better by just doing some graded exercise, which I didn't know about. But then... I decided to go back to university and I pushed myself so hard that I made myself so ill that I then had very chronic fatigue syndrome and oh. I couldn't walk for more than five minutes a day.
0: So That was when you came to Leeds, right?
1: That was when I came to Leeds, yeah. So I then um, very luckily found a hospital that dealt with environmental illness and I started to get better. And you know, that's when I started to question how I'd been living my life, what had pushed me so hard mm. to completely ignore what was happening in my body and just to just keep going. So that's when my interest in psychology started. I started reading and I trained as a coach and then I went to America and then I've completed my training as a, as a self-compassion teacher. So it's it's such an important element of my life that I have to pause and just see what's going on for me. Because, you know if I get too stressed or too overwhelmed then there is a chance that the the chronic fatigue can return.
0: It's such a complex subject in, isn't it this because I, I'm as you're talking there there's, there's quite a few elements that I I can see in myself and not see in myself I mean I was thinking about our school days my school reports always, always said Simon could do better I guess yours always said Jonathan's an excellent student you know and so um uh, and you you probably worked yourself um, much harder than I did doing exams, and so you got good grades, whereas I barely scraped through and did the did the <laughs> almost like we talk about as coaches what 's the minimum amount of work you have to do to achieve the, the pass mark that was my i think so that that sort of odds with my triathlon passion now for pushing myself hard but um uh, and since then obviously my approach to work and and um, has been totally different to my school days but I see I see quite a lot of those behavioral traits that you talk about there in um, endurance athletes, constantly pushing, not wanting to give up. And it does make me think now, what's their backstory? What's what's really going on behind them that, 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 that in there to make them push themselves so hard and just ignore that advice and ignore that, you know, because those, again, talking about the lady, you know, falling over on the other side of the road, I will often see or hear those people saying, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, mate. You don't want to be training with an injury. Oh, you've got a cold. You should take some time off. And yet, you know, they they are ignoring their own advice. Um, And then I was thinking about how you were talking about mindfulness, which is something else I've, I've become very aware of in the last few years and how these days it seems that that's, that's diminishing in many people, you know, you only have to walk down the street, probably in London, you notice it more that you're having to avoid people that are walking around with the headphones on with the head looking in the phone and they just walk straight into you. They don't, you know, you can walk straight towards them and they, they, they they just don't notice you or they step out in front of, um, they step out in front of a cyclist or a, a, you know, a motorist because they're just not paying attention. But equally, um, there's an element of, something that we were having a coach discussion about about narcissism isn't it? that everybody's so worried about what everybody else thinks about them and making sure that the world can see you know through instagram or strava or whatever that they they're not they're not mindful about themselves enough um and it's complex
1: it is complex and it's really interesting you talk about that that distinction between you know giving advice to somebody else why you shouldn't train through an injury you know Maybe you should take some rest, but then not listening to your own advice because there are two central questions to mindful self-compassion. The first is, how would I treat a friend? What would I say to a friend who is struggling with what I'm struggling with? And then can you turn that spotlight and the same messages, the same talk and the same tone of voice that you would, and say the same things to yourself, but not just say the same things to yourself, actually heed the things that you're saying to yourself and that leads us to the next question of mindful self compassion which is what do i need you know we talk about a lot about the inner critic you know that 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 part of us that is very hard on ourselves and there's a difference between the question of the inner critic which is am i good enough and the voice of self compassion is what is good for me mm-hmm. so Am I good enough? That's a part that was constantly pushing me, and it might be a part that constantly pushing the athletes. Am I good enough? And what's the standard? What's the expectation that you're trying to get to? Mm-hmm. Whereas self compassion says, "What do I need?" And that's a much more gentle, much more inward kind of question, isn't it? It's that it's that sense of looking inwards rather than you know, am I good enough? Is a sense of looking outwards for approval. So
0: I'm just being devil's advocate here, but I get sense that. If I was to explain self-compassion to an athlete, they might say, well, it's just self-pity or self-indulgence. You're just feeling sorry for yourself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, because they haven't thought about this deeply enough, they might, well, most other people would be nodding too and going, yeah, just pull yourself together, you know, <laughs> get your finger out. Yeah, and, pull so, your socks up. Yeah, pull your socks up and just get, you know. And, and of course, there's a lot of, milit- in, in certainly in coaching, there's a, f- there's a good proportion of of military-type advice that comes in there as well, like no pain, no gain, you know, mm. um, go hard or go home. Mm. Um, and if you ever watch any of the adverts on the telly for um, sports drinks or Garmin or any of those, it's always people breathing hard, sweating, looking like they've worked hard. There's never anybody just sitting there gazing out over the ocean watching the waves rolling. Um, mm. So th- so then the marketing tells us that this is how we need to approach life is we need to approach it with energy and aggression and you know go out there and grab it by the neck. So going back to my first question, what is the difference between self-compassion and self-pity and self-indulgence?
1: Okay, so if we take self-pity first of all, um, self-pity, is, it, I, I think, is it, a sense of isolation, it's what we're going back to, it's that sense of isolation, whereas self-compassion reminds us that everybody suffers, that's the common humanity. You know, and the mindfulness encourages us not to exaggerate the extent, the extent of suffering. So the research on self-compassion, of which there is a huge amount now, is that people who are self-compassionate are more likely to engage in perspective-taking rather than focusing on their own distress so they are less likely to ruminate on how bad things are so that that sense of self pity means that we kind of it's a woe is me it's you know we just you know if, if if you if you go back to the narcissistic thinking which is just a focus on self you know self pity is just a focus on one's self and one's own suffering whereas if you bring common humanity and mindfulness we can get a a story that moves it away from in front of our eyes and gives us a greater context to put it in so what was the next one? Self-indulgent? Self-indulgence, yes. Okay. So self-indulgence, you know, it's it's like a, a mother who would give a child ice cream, isn't it? More and more ice cream and indulge the child.
0: Or we give it ourselves. We'd have our own ice cream.
1: Exactly. exactly. But if you can take it as a, as a compassionate mother, wouldn't give that to a child. A compassionate mother would say, you can have a little bit and then tomorrow you can have some more. Right. Because...
0: Uh, so again, if if I was to say, well, I'm feeling sorry for myself today, so I'm going to buy a big tub of Ben and Jerry's and I'm going to sit here and, and eat it and drink a bottle of wine. Actually, what we're doing there—that self-indulgence—is is actually probably going to make us feel worse. We're we're all, it's almost like a self-harm, isn't it? In the
1: in in some ways, absolutely. And self-compassion—if you can tune into your self-compassionate voice—what it wants for you is long-term health, not short-term pleasure.
0: Right. So. Um, now that 's interesting because something we talk about in coaching well again, something that society is training us to do to want more is immediate gratification isn 't it instant gratification and a long term approach which you know you can 't change your health overnight, really it takes you know days, months to change um, the human body you know you 've talked about your journey it 's taken years it, it takes years to build decent fitness, it takes years to build a business it takes years to build a relationship and yet everything that we hear now tells us that we can have everything, you know, at the click of a button. So educating people on the long term approach rather than the short term
1: hit. Absolutely. And the research shows very clearly that people who are self-compassionate engage in healthier behaviors like exercise, eating well and going to the doctor more regularly. Mm -hmm. So if you are listening to what your body needs, you can actually then say, I'm going to honor that. So, it might be, yes, I want the ice cream, but the long-term benefits of that are, are, are not good for me. So I'm going to choose actually just to have a little bit or not to have any at all.
0: Does self-compassion then build resilience in the long term? Absolutely. Yes, it does. Right. Can you explain how that would how that happens? And I'm, um, I'm fairly certain that you're going to also point to some of the, re- the strong research that shows this as well.
1: Again, there is a, a huge amount of research on this. So if we take the meaning of resilience, resilience is the ability to bounce back, isn't it? It's bounce mm-hmm. back ability. You know, when something <laughs> yeah. goes wrong or we fail at something, you know, it's the ability to, to get back up and, and to keep on going. You know, this is a very big part of Brene Brown's research on rising strong. It's about you know, in the physics of vulnerability, of taking risks, there will be failure. It's, it's, it's a given, you know, you can't always get everything right. You know, you're going to get a run wrong or you're going to get a swim wrong. You're going to overtrain or undertrain. Mm. Um, so building resilience is that ability to, to, to notice when we've got something wrong and to say, ah, oh, okay, what can I learn from this? And the more self-compassionate you are, because then you're stopping and pausing and checking in with yourself what's going on. What was this like for me? What was that like emotionally for me? You know, so it's, it's the question again, what, what do I need? Mm. So we yeah. build in a strength by building self-compassion because we're able to be kind to ourselves. And people who are self-compassionate compassion, are more likely to be courageous and more likely to get up and do the thing again because also they know how to be kind to themselves when it goes wrong or doesn't go according to plan.
0: So on the flip side then, if somebody is unable to have self-compassion. What can be the impacts of that for them in their life?
1: So it's it's highly correlated with um, negative states like depression, anxiety, stress, shame, and negative body image. Okay. And it's highly correlated when we practice self-compassion with positive states like happiness, optimism, and linked to better physical health.
0: Okay, <laughs> if you if you gave people two lists and said which of these would you choose, you know, depression, negative body image, blah blah blah, or oh, happiness, <laughs> you know, it's I know everybody trainer, isn't it? everybody would choose the other one. So, okay, tell me what you have to do to get that. Mm-hmm. You've just got, you've just got to sit there and just think about it. No, I can't do that. It's too soft.
1: Oh yes, but you see, that's part of the that's part of the the misconception. Of self-compassion, yeah, no, exactly, that, that, exactly. That, you know, you just have to sit there and be kind to yourself because actually, you, you know, self compassion can be behavioural. Mm. You know, we can, you know, it might be taking a walk, it might be talking to a friend, it might be having a bath, it might be spending time with your dog, it might be sitting down and reading. You know, there are lots of ways to practice self compassion. We'll come to that at the end. Um, So it doesn't have to just be sitting there, I'm meditating and I'm saying lovely things to myself. And that's perhaps part of the misconception is that we have to do this, we have to spend, you know, hours in meditation on a mat every day. But actually, you know, self compassion is a response to struggle. And struggle happens in our daily life. It doesn't happen while we're sitting on the side of a mountain or we're sitting on a meditation cushion. It happens in daily life. So, self compassion is absolutely the right thing to, to cultivate because when we face struggle in our lives, we know how to just pause and go, ah, oh, it's okay. Rather than, you know, the critical voice saying, you stupid whatever, or, you know, you've got this wrong, or self shaming.
0: Mm, self shaming. That's an interesting one. Um, and guilt as well. Uh, again, if we talk, come back to the endurance sports world that I, oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So can I just make a distinction between shame and guilt? Because yeah, this is really sure. important because they're words that are used interchangeably, but mm-hmm. actually the research shows that they're quite different. So shame is a focus on self and guilt is a focus on behavior. So if we get something wrong, say you turn up to work one day and you're late and you've got a hangover and you've missed a really important meeting, there are two narratives that could happen. Oh, my God, I'm a terrible person and the focus is on self and it's a shame, self-talk. Or you could say, oh, I got something wrong. I did a bad thing here. That wasn't great but it's a focus on the behavior. And the reason, and it feels really semantic, but actually it's really important because the outcomes for shame and guilt are very different. So shame is highly highly correlated with addiction, obesity, not paying attention to ourselves, whereas guilt is inversely correlated to that.
0: Okay. So when an athlete misses a training session, and there could be a number of reasons for that one, they just feel really tired and they just think, Oh, I just can't do it today. Two, they've had so much stress in their life, they've not been sleeping that they, they've lost some motivation. And that's generally a pointing to the fact that you know their body's trying to tell them, you perhaps need more rest rather than exercise. Um there's again there's two behaviors there. One is they go out and do the program or they do out and do the session because they often say, well, Exercise is my antidote to stress. I mean, it's a stressor. It activates the parasympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic. Fight or flight nervous system. Yeah, sympathetic nervous system. So they're all going into the, all of those are going into stress bucket. Um, So that's one action. The other one is to not go and do a training session and maybe they've taken the decision or maybe it's forced upon them because the train's late or they're stuck in a traffic jam or they have to go and pick the, the child up from school, you know, so they couldn't get the run done. But then they have this sense of, oh, I feel really guilty because I missed my training session. But where does that all come from in the first place?
1: It, it's, part of our, it's part of our human evolution, isn't it? You know, the threat defense system that you're talking about there evolved thousands of years ago because we needed to be able to run or fight or freeze when we were faced danger to our physical well-being so it was a question of life or death so the amygdala you know, the smoke alarm in the brain that tells us about danger sets off a system, sets off an alarm and we release cortisol and adrenaline and we either fight flight or freeze now we're not under threat physically anymore from wild animals or tigers or elephants but it's a threat now to our self-concept so we're defending constantly against our self-concept, against our ego being eroded. So that's when we're self-critical or we isolate or we <coughs> ruminate. And self-compassion is the absolute antidote to that. The self-criticism, the, the guilt or the self-shaming, you know, if we can respond to that with kindness. And it's not self-compassion doesn't always bring answers. Sometimes it's just comforting ourselves when we're feeling bad. And guilt is a feeling that makes us feel bad inside. So if we can respond with self-kindness, then, you know, maybe the answer comes out of that, that it would be, but actually, what does my body need today? Maybe I need to do a gentler training session. Maybe I go for a walk instead of a run. Maybe, you know, maybe sitting down for 10 minutes is the right thing for me to do right now.
0: So, it and is that the same driver then that causes people to push through illness and injury? Um you know, and go and do some training instead. When it would be fairly obvious, probably to most people, and definitely to observers, that you know you need to take some time out today because you haven't stopped coughing for the last hour, or you know you've got a
1: splitting headache, or you didn't sleep. Now I need to do a run. I have to do a run. Well, then I would question what what's driving that. And there there are two, there are three different affect regulation systems. One is driven the driven incentive resource focused, mm-hmm. which is about achievement. Then you have the threat focused and then you have the content and safe and connected one, which is about soothing. So that's where the self-compassion comes in. So when these are out of alignment, that's when we struggle. That's when we suffer.
0: Mm.
1: So there's a driven part of you, but there's also a threat. Well, if I don't do that, what does that mean about me? You know, what are people going to say about me if, if my little thing doesn't appear on Strava, you know, or I can't be seen to be doing that?
0: How much of that's about accountability then as we brought it through life because we're being accountable to people, we're accountable to your parents for performing well at school or doing your homework or doing your chores around the house. We're, we're accountable to our boss. you know. So then when we have a coach or we have a program, we're accountable to somebody or something for doing this and we don't want to let those people down. Because that's something I hear a lot is, oh, well, you've written the program. I didn't want to let you down by not doing the session. Um, so again, is that something we've learned and we need to unlearn?
1: Yes, and yes. <laughs> the right. simple answer to that. <laughs> Although accountability is a great thing, you know, accountability can really help people to stay motivated. You know, when I work with my clients, so they want to change a behaviour. You know, I offer them a daily support just to check it. Well, how are you doing today? How did it go today? And that kind of level of accountability and support can be very nurturing and very productive, and and, and very compassionate. Mm. But it's about what's driving that question. You know, well, I didn't want to let you down because what would that mean if I let you down? It would mean that you would think badly of me. So that's the bit that you have to question. What's driving the question of the accountability?
0: I mean, it sounds like another podcast altogether, but we keep looping back to what people think of us. And so the ego and narcissism are sort of quite heavily linked to all of this self-compassion thing, aren't they?
1: yes absolutely again it's the threat to our self concept it's the threat to our ego that we're defending against and self compassion is the answer to that because we don't need to have threat in in this world anymore we can just if we stop and be kind to ourselves and talk to ourselves as we would talk to a friend who was struggling then actually you know we stop resisting because pain is inevitable in life you know emotional physical mental but suffering is optional it's only when we resist the pain that we create the struggle and the suffering. Mm.
0: Except the marketing tells us we need to suffer. We need to push hard. We need to grit our teeth and be sweating and be suffering.
1: But that's listening to something outside of your body, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. No, very, I mean, It's all very good to have goals and to have, you know, to have things that you want to achieve, but they also have to be aligned with your values. Mm. You no,
0: know? I mean, it, you know, if I was a casual observer listening to this conversation, I'd be getting the impression that if I had some self-compassion, the long-term outcomes for many things are positive and way more positive than not having self-compassion. So as the outside observer, I'm like, hold on a minute, I'd like to get a bit of this. <laughs> I, need to, I need to get some of that. So I start feeling better in the long-term mentally and physically. So how do how, as individuals, do we go about starting the process of, of having self-compassion? Because I guess, again, as it's a learned thing, we have to start with some small tasks. And then as we get more adept at this, it becomes more natural. But we still have to keep returning to the, until it until it becomes an ingrained habit.
1: So there's one thing I'd like to talk about before we get to that. And I think this is really important for, for, for your athletes, is that often people believe that self-compassion will undermine motivation. You know, pe- most people believe that self-criticism is an effective motivator, but actually what it does, it undermines self-confidence and leads to fear of failure. So when we motivate ourselves with self-compassion, it comes from the desire for health and well-being. It comes from the desire to be kind to ourselves. You know, it's that long-term view over the short-term gain. You know, if you have a harshly critical coach so imagine that there's a, a child who comes home from school and he's done some maths homework and he worked really hard at it, but he didn't do very well in his test. And he comes home and he shares it with his dad. And his dad in this example can have one of two responses. He can either say, You absolute idiot, you didn't work hard enough, you know, go to your room you know, and work this out for yourself. You know, the kid's gonna feel shamed and probably not very likely to want to do well.
0: This sounds Whereas a bit this sounds to- a bit too familiar to me. <laughs>
1: And if the, but if the father said, oh, my God, son, you worked so hard at that. I'm, I'm really sad that you didn't get the, the, the result that you wanted. How about we sit down together and work out something that's going to work for you? And can I help you? What can I do so that you can achieve the best things for yourself? So we have that internalized voice as well, one that can be really critical or one that can be much more compassionate. Now, you know, in that example which would you rather be? If you're the son, you'd much rather have a father who was supportive and kind and understanding. So we also have that inner compassionate voice within us. So that leads us to where do we start? So where we start is, you know, the the, the questions, the two questions we come back to again and again. How would I speak to a friend? And can I speak to myself in the same way? And asking the question, what do I need? And we have to distinguish between the voice of inner criticism and the voice of inner compassion. So there are some interesting ways of doing this. We can you know, spend a week just noticing when the inner critic comes up. I think it's really interesting to, I have a name for my inner critic, so I'm very aware of its voice, of how it talks to me. I call him Kevin, Kevin the inner critic. Um, So we begin to notice when that voice surfaces and what it feels like, because when we criticize ourselves, Go back to self-shaming, you know, we shame ourselves. And the inner critic might feel very powerful, but there's a part of us that feels very, very small and less likely to want to get up and, and feel resilient. But also we we need to cultivate that inner compassionate voice. We need to learn how to speak to ourselves more kindly. And that's the question of, you know, how do I treat a friend? How would I speak to somebody who was struggling? The lady on the opposite side of the road who'd fallen over and dropped her shopping.
0: So ask ourselves two questions. How would I treat a friend? And can I speak to myself in the same way? And then what do I need? Noticing the inner critic. Mm -hmm. And then what? Taking action. Because that seems to be a sticking point for a lot of people is actually doing
1: something about it. Well, that's the compassion bit, isn't it? That's the difference between empathy and compassion It's a desire to do something about it. So when we have, we do have to take notice of, you know, what we're saying to ourselves and then act on it. And that's the change. That's the change that is difficult for people. Mm-hmm. You know, you can begin to notice, but can I make the change? Can I actually say to myself, do you know what? Today, I'm going to rest. Today, I'm just going to sit. And there's a really interesting, again, language point here, because this is the hardest thing that I try to get my clients to do is to take rest. And because most of them label it as doing nothing, Mm. doing nothing in their head is something to be ashamed of. You know, parents say, what are you doing? I'm not doing anything. Or teachers who said the same thing. You know, we were shamed for doing nothing. So we have to change that narrative to it's okay to rest.
0: I was world class at doing nothing when I was at
1: school. Yes, you were, Simon.
0: <laughs> but I do
1: recognise that that
0: trait there in, in both myself, and I've got a lot better about it. than and um and and in others. And again, particularly, particularly endurance athletes, because they're the sort of people who are, you know, particularly triathletes are very successful in their lives. And then they come along and think, I know I'm very successful. I've got lots going on, but I want to do a triathlon now. I want to do an Ironman and I need to do it this year before I'm 40 or 50. Um, and I've only got a few hours a week, but I'll pack those empty hours in with more training so that I don't have any spare time. And of course we know that, that the whole process of human evolution and performing at an optimal level requires doing stuff and recovering from stuff don't we so we have to we have those two um parts of the nervous system the sympathetic and parasympathetic and it's like that yin and the yang you talked about and one complements the other but but most often sleep is seen as a, a just a waste of time and so how can we how can we cons- put together a plan that re- requires less sleep and more doing um, mm. but but actually <laughs> you, you, that's a short path to disaster really isn't it
1: Absolutely. Now, I wrote some things be, be, before the talk. I thought well what what benefits could this could self-compassion be to you know to elite athletes or high performance athletes. And I thought I thought it would you know when you're self-compassionate you choose the right food. You choose to sleep. It helps to reduce anxiety. You know anything that drains your energy away, stress, anxiety. You know the, the, the more we can respond to that with kindness to reduce the anxiety, the better it is for your body. But it also helps us to recognize when we're moving. So we have the windows of tolerance. So you have safety, you have challenge, and you have overwhelm. And that's just not mental, but that's also physical. So it helps us to recognize or help the athletes to recognize when they're moving from challenge to overwhelm. And to pull it back a little bit, you talked about those elite athletes, you know, that, that one second or that one beat difference, they have the capacity to listen and to, to move it back into a challenge rather than an overwhelm. But I think also really importantly, I guess, and I don't know this, but when you're doing a race, there comes a point when you, it gets harder. You know, they talk about the wall in the marathon, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm guessing that there's some negative self-talk that happens in those moments. And you know, if you can replace that with kinder, more supportive messaging, what's often referred to as the inner champion or your inner compassionate voice, you know, one that says, you're doing really well. This is hard, but keep going. A much kinder voice, you're much more likely to keep going than to than to stop.
0: There's uh, another guest that I had on uh, about a year ago. Alex Hutchinson wrote a book called Endure, which is all about the, the um, what did he call it? The... Uh... Curious the elasticity of the human mind or something. And he talked about studies they've done where people smile or where they're shown subliminal subliminally, you know, in bursts of microseconds, pictures of either one group was shown pictures of somebody with a, an angry face and, and another group of cyclists were shown a picture of people with a happy face. And the but it wasn't long enough for them to really sort of recognise what it was. It was just they saw this quick burst. And the ones who were seeing the happy face were able to keep cycling at the same level for about 8% longer than those mm-hmm. who saw the angry face. And there's a lot of athletes that I know that are famous for being smiley and smiling throughout a race. I think for them, it's natural rather than something they've trained themselves to do, you know, and force. Because you, you can tell when people are smiling properly because the, the little lines around the corners of their eyes uh, are activated. Whereas when people have got a false smile, that ne- doesn't necessarily happen. But, but still, that positive approach tends to work better for most people than the negative approach of, I'm doing rubbish, you know, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Mm, yeah. And there, there's a technique that um, I use sometimes with my clients. It's just to put a pen in your mouth because it enforces the, the same response of smiling, you know, and it changes your physiology. It changes how you feel.
0: You were going to do that on camera then, weren't you? And then you realize that everybody's listening. <laughs> but, but actually, we could use the bit of the video. Give us that. Give us the example there. So.
1: You do that; it mimics, it mimics smiling. And actually, when you do it, it changes how you feel. You know, it's the same as doing a smile, but you can hold it there for longer.
0: Yeah, you just can't talk. I feel different. (laughs) You've mentioned several words, or they've come up in conversation several times uh, as as we've been going through this conversation. Mindfulness seems to be uh, um, a key factor in all of this. Just noticing and naming, not being judgmental, just observing, noticing and naming and identifying things, clearly taking action, um, you know, because there's no point in just noticing that the house is on fire unless you're going to take some action to try and put the fire out. Um, So taking action, um, asking questions. And that's something that perhaps, you know, and I know it's something I've had to learn over the years, is to ask more questions. And you know, when when you said yes and yes, then I thought oh, that's just poor questioning, Simon, because I asked you I asked you closed questions. And of course, in your training to be a lawyer, you would learn the benefits of asking open and closed questions, or asking no questions at all. But asking questions, listening, and you know, most of us aren't very good at listening to other people. We're even less good at listening to ourselves. So, questioning, listening, mindfulness being positive and also something my guest yesterday talked about was surrounding yourself with positive people as well i think that the environment that you inhabit can also have an impact on the behaviors that you have because if you're around negative people or critical people that's that's only going to have one outcome
1: Absolutely. Yes, I think mindfulness, so the, the program that we run is, is mindful self-compassion. So it's mindfulness with self-compassion. And remembering that one of the elements of self-compassion is mindfulness, is being able to, to pay attention, to, to notice what is happening when it's happening.
0: Well, I'm glad you've mentioned that. You've got a course coming up soon, haven't you, about mindful self-compassion. Maybe, maybe you could explain a little bit about what that course would contain and, um, and for anybody who's interested, how they might be able to sign up for it or find out some more information
1: yeah so starting on the 24th of april so it's um it's a nine-week course and it's a deep dive into self-compassion um so we look at all the different elements that we've talked about today but we also include um 14 different practices so 14 different meditative practices all are based around the breath and self-compassion and self-kindness and it really is it's an experiential program so As you say, talking about and hearing about self-compassion is all very well. And we can go, yeah, I understand what it is. But unless you actually begin to practice it, so practicing and learning in a group of people, there is a sense of an accountability in there that isn't driven, but it just exists because you're part of something bigger than yourself. Um, So it starts on the 24th of April. Um, People, I guess, can contact you and then contact me or they can contact me directly.
0: Well, we'll put a link in the show notes to the, if you've got an outline of the course thing, um, listeners can go and find out about that there. And then obviously they can, um, move on from there to, to, to sort of signing up if, if that's what they want. But if they've been listening to this and paying attention and being mindful, I'm fairly certain that there's going to be some people thinking, actually, that might be a good thing for me to balance out with Mm. all of the training I'm doing.
1: Yeah. I absolutely agree. I think it would be great for anybody. I think we can all learn how to be kinder to ourselves. Mm. I think it's universal.
0: Well, Jonathan, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you sharing that your knowledge with us and also spending some time with us today. So thank you very much.
1: It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting you're, me.
0: You're most welcome. Well, so listeners, thank you for being here and uh, we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Right, that's all for this week. There are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. I'd just like to take a moment to say how much I appreciate you listening to the High Performance Human podcast each week. You can join the conversation today by subscribing for free on iTunes so that you never miss an episode. And also, please join our High Performance Human podcast Facebook page. I'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. But for now, please remember that being a High Performance Human is a journey, so stay healthy stay focused and keep trying to be just a little bit better in some way than you were yesterday